welcome to the inaugural episode of the Dice Pirates podcast. I'm your captain, Ian, here with my trusty first mate, Matt. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. I love that you just right out the gate gave yourself the rank of captain. That's uh, That look, seems somehow unfair. Look, I put it to a vote and I won, so it, it just happened. I'm sorry. I'm, I dispute that. Uh, but Unfortunately, I'm gonna... you're the first mate, so you can't dispute it. Um, okay, fine. Um, yeah, so we're starting a podcast, but that's kind of a big deal. So how did we get here? What's Why are we starting a podcast, Matt? That's a great question because we thought, what does the world need uh, right now? And we thought a chance for two guys to talk about games together on a podcast. So nobody's done this. We're going to, well, that's We're really true. breaking new ground. We're venturing into uncharted territory. Uncharted waters, you might say. <laughs> Uh, okay, so yeah, no, we are, uh, we're part of a game group that gets together and plays games every week. We've been getting together and playing for a couple of years now, and uh, over the last few years just have come to really love this hobby of tabletop gaming, have even ventured out into uh, role-playing games with D&D, and uh, just really love the hobby, and for me, what keeps me coming back is just the community, like the way that tabletop games bring people together to play face-to-face. I mean, I still love video games and play video games, but there's just something about sitting around a table with friends, moving pieces around, having conversation and laughs, and the stories that come out of those experiences. Yeah, the social aspect of it is something that I think we both really appreciate, which is why, and I'm sure we'll talk about this at a later date, but why it was so difficult, especially during the, um, the lockdown we went through, trying to do board games online was such a difficult experience because you can never really replicate the experience of actually playing a game with in, a, in person with physical objects. Yes, I would actually love to do a, an episode on that down the road uh, about transitioning tabletop games to the digital space. I think there's some interesting ideas out there about how to do that, but you're right, it just wasn't the same. I mean, you're chatting, you're still kind of moving the piece around in this virtual environment. If you never played Tabletop Simulator, it's a basically a one-to-one simulation of the 3D game pieces and you're dragging them around and moving them. But it's still it's not the same. I mean, holding a piece of uh, a, a really nice plastic miniature or a cardboard or like the clink of metal coins, the tactile part of board gaming is so uh, great and so it's what makes it so special to it me. Re- it really does, yeah. It's, it's one of those things where I just I feel like there are a lot of aspects that really make a good game and being able to physically touch pieces, especially when you have good design, is such a huge part of that. So. I like that a lot, but you know we have been able to play more games recently and have been able to play stuff in person. Um, but that doesn't leave me to the question. So, what have you been playing lately, Matt? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, we this this sets up our, our next segment here that we're gonna uh, logically call what you've been playing. And so we thought we would kind of open up each episode with a little, little discussion about recent games we've played that are fun. And I wanted to talk about a game that we played. I think about two, three weeks ago now. Uh, a game that you defeated me in, but I'm still not, I'm not bitter about it. I don't think about it a lot, uh, like every day or anything. Uh, Crusaders, Thy Will Be Done from Tasty Minstrel Games. It is one of my favorite games. I would put it up there. I don't think it would be top five, but it is definitely one of the games that I keep coming back to. I would play that game anytime it was put on the table. Yeah, it's, so I'll kind of set it up and describe it if you haven't played it. Uh, Crusaders is, at first glance, uh, it looks like it's going to be a kind of a classic Risk-style war game. When, the, when it's set up on the table, you have a nice little map of Europe. You have all these pieces, little knights, castles, and other uh, buildings that you're going to spread out. And, and when you first look at the game, you think, I get this. We're going to be marching across the table, taking over territory, 
and having a, a war game here, uh, spreading Christendom across Europe at the point of a sword, which you kind of are, but it's also not really because the battles in the game are very abstract. The territory control aspect of the game is not a true territory control game. You do kind of squat on spaces, but you don't really sit there and control them per se. What the game really is, is a game of managing your rondel. That is 100% the reason I come back to it time and time again, because the gameplay itself is, while it's good, it is entirely based, like you said, around the idea of the rondel. And the way that works is that there's a circle that you have, and there are six actions within this circle. And on each action, you have a number of action cubes that you place there. And the way that this works is, as you take actions, you redistribute those action cubes around the circle. So your actions are entirely based upon the actions you took before, how often you can get a lot of dice onto the same action cube. And so it's really about managing which turns you take in which order. And it changes the entire game because you don't just have actions you take, you have to think about your actions many turns in advance. And it really changes the way that you play. Yeah, it's such a weird uh, thing of like, uh, I wanna move, but I don't have enough uh, tokens on this move uh, section of my rondel. Uh, so you, you think, okay, so I want to move four spaces. I need to eventually get four of these action tokens onto that part of the wedge. So over a course of turns, you've got to think about how to distribute your uh, little uh, action tokens around this round uh, circular little uh, dial on your board. We're probably not even doing a great job of explaining it. It's one of the most unusual game uh, mechanics uh, that we've encountered in our uh, years of gaming. The other thing I like about it is it's a strategy game of uh, conquest and control and war, but it plays really fast. We played a game with three players, and it helped that we all sort of knew the rules, but played it in about 45 minutes. You don't get a lot of like war gamey strategy games to the table that you can knock out in 45 minutes. No, that's very rare. I was impressed by how fast we played. I would definitely say if you are just learning, it'd probably be closer to an hour and a half or so, but... In general, like if you understand what you're doing, it is very quick, it's very fun, and strategically, it's actually quite deep because of the rondel mechanic, but also just because of the way the game moves, as you defeat various enemies, they become progressively stronger. So waiting to fight until later can actually be a very bad decision, and it really makes you try to ex um, expand very aggressively as opposed to taking a passive approach and just building up your force. Yeah, it moves quick. It's uh, a, a real brain teaser to try to like plan your actions multiple moves in advance. It's got incredibly uh, well-designed components and board. I don't want to do a full review of this, but definitely say it's worth a look if you're looking for something different. If you like historical-themed games, that's Crusaders. That will be done from Tasty Mental Games. So, Ian, what you been playing? I think another game that we played recently that I actually really like is Sagrada. Um, Sagrada is a dice placement game that is based around the idea of trying to fill a stained glass window. You have multicolored dice and you have to try and roll and fill in a preset order in which case in which you must place the dice. You get to choose different numbers, different colors, and you have to fill in a box that you've been given and you have different other options that you can do as well depending on the numbering of the dice and which order you place them in and various other aspects for soaring. It's a very chill game, it's very slow, but it's just very satisfying to play. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this game up because it really hits on one of those things that keeps me coming back to tabletop gaming, and that is just that experience of playing with really uh, beautiful components that are well-designed. And so this game uh, evokes these beautiful gothic uh, 
stained glass windows and your little personal playing uh, mat that you're working off of is the grid for a stained glass window and you use these brightly colored dice. The game is about rolling uh, uh, these translucent uh, yellow, purple, red, blue dice that make that when you uh, pick them up and place them into your grid kind of form the stained glass window in front of you. So over the course of the game you actually build this attractive little colorful grid. The feeling of like rolling the big handfuls of dice is really fun. It's just a great tactile experience that is fun to play and also uh, just a really uh, ingenious puzzle. It is very fun. Those are definitely two games that we've enjoyed playing lately, but I do have a big question for you, Matt. Okay. What are your personal top five games? We're going to go to a short break, but we're going to talk about that when we come back. All right, and welcome back to the uh, Dice Pirates podcast. Um, yeah, so today's main topic we thought we would get into, since this is our first episode, uh, a personal top five of sorts. And this was actually really difficult, and I don't know that I actually arrived at my personal top five, but these are five games that I really love to play. But we thought this would be a good way to introduce uh, ourselves to the listening audience and get a feel for the types of games that we enjoy and the types of games that we've been playing. Yeah. in our group so i i'm not totally comfortable saying these are my top five but these are five games that uh i would play almost any time uh that somebody asked so that would be my question is what criteria did you use because when i looked at these obviously top five games is really difficult because there are tons of games i would play constantly but i think when i looked at games that yes i would play if somebody offered me a choice i would play that game 100 percent every single time but also i tried to look at different um, genres of games. What are different facets that I like? And I tried to pick my favorite game within various um, game designs. What kind of did you look at? I really tried to go back to my like favorite memories of games that we've had, just like sessions that I still think about or games that are still as fun to me to play after like the 10th or 12th time. Because that's one of the things that I think happens when you get like really deep into uh, the board game hobby like, like we have, is you tend to play a lot of games. And we don't often repeat games week after week. I mean, we'll move pretty quickly through the library that we have amongst our group of friends. And there's only a few games that just keep coming back to the table over and over again. And so games that have that kind of sticking power are the ones that I uh, really went back to. So I want to go ahead and switch off one game to another game. Um, do you want to start us off? What would be your first in your top five? Sure. So the first game in my top five is going to be Castles of Burgundy uh, from designer Stefan Feld, a, uh, a sort of a modern classic, I guess, of the golden age of board games that we're kind of in right now, this, uh, gold, this board game renaissance. And if you haven't played it, uh, at first glance, this game looks like it's going to be deeply boring. It is... Uh, kind of uh, shut up and sit down and their online review famously described it as kind of a, a, a combination of a board game and a history textbook. It has the most, bl <laughs> it has the most bland art depicting uh, pastoral uh, medieval uh, France. But the basic goal here is you're building an estate. You have a little player board that is your land and you're going to eventually acquire uh, little tiles that you place down to complete sections of your estate, whether it's farmland or cities or castles. And you score points for completing sections. You, uh, each tile that you lay down will have a special effect or a power that it activates that can uh, trigger sort of combinations of actions. And the whole thing is driven by this unique uh, dice-driven uh, action mechanism where you roll a set of dice 
and those limit your choices for that turn. You can only spend uh, those dice to take particular actions from the center board or on your player board. It's, uh, it sounds complicated, but it's not. It really is the, uh, to me, it's a great introduction to Euro-style uh, gaming because it's strategic. It's not like the classic family board games if you're kind of just getting into like higher level like hobby board games. But it's, it's very accessible once you kind of grasp the uh, dice mechanic. Yeah, we actually had um, quite a fun game of that the other day. We had somebody jump in who doesn't normally play games with us, but we she actually did very well. We were actually all able to score fairly high. It was a very competitive game, and even the new player did surprisingly well. So it can be very accessible if you have somebody to teach you the rules, and it's a very enjoyable game. Well, I think what's so brilliant about the design, I mean, you could do a whole episode probably just on how brilliant Castles of Burgundy is, and there's a reason why it's become a classic, but... The dice mechanic limits your choices, and so it takes away some of the analysis paralysis that comes in in these Euro-style games where there's a lot of choices and you feel like you have to agonize over each decision. When you roll these dice, you really can only do uh, a few things. If you roll a six, you can either use it to buy uh, a tile off the number six space in the center or place a tile on a number six space in your center, and that's it. And so if you, whatever dice you roll really tightens your choices and that lets the game move a little bit quicker, and it's not quite as overwhelming for a new player. It also does a good job of restricting what you can do each round, because the game is split up into, I believe, um, five or six rounds overall, but within each round, there are five turns. And so it does a good job of restricting your actions each turn, keeping it very manageable, and allowing you to focus on what you're doing instead of planning a very long-term strategy. Yeah, and I was really surprised at how much the game changed at four players, too. We, that, I think of all the times I've played that game, uh, I've only played it four players twice. And it really gets intense because with four players, there's much more competition for the uh, uh, tiles and things you need to acquire in the center space. And so it got, it actually got, it got not really heated, but it got really competitive. But also it was a very high scoring game. Everyone scored over 200 points in the session that we played. So yeah, Castles of Burgundy, I think if you are trying to figure out if Euro gaming is for you, and that's a whole topic that we probably need to unpack in another episode, is Euro gaming versus the more thematic, so-called Ameritrash-style gaming. But if if the Euro games seem kind of intimidating to you, I think uh, Castles of Burgundy is a good gateway into that whole world of games. All right, Ian, so what's, your, uh, what's the first game in your uh, top five? The first game I like to pick out is actually Champions of Midgard by Gray Fox Games. This is a game that is a worker placement game, and it is a Nordic-themed game. And the idea behind this is that you are recruiting various soldiers. You're recruiting axemen, spearmen, bowmen, stuff like that. You're trying to recruit those, and then you're going to fight classic monsters. You're going to fight trolls. You're going to fight wyverns. You're trying to just fight these legendary monsters. You often will have to cross seas, and there are um, there are like hazards that you have to get by as you go to fight the monsters. So it is kind of a marriage between a dice game where you're rolling to win, but also a resource management worker placement game that I thoroughly enjoy. I think it's one of the more thematic games. I feel that everything ties very well into the theme of the game, and it just feels very satisfying because even if you're not doing great, you get the... Um, you get the feedback loop of picking up adventurers, going to fight monsters, and when you fight monsters, it just feels so satisfying. The uh, 
Yes, I actually, this one was on and off my list during the week when we were getting ready to record this episode, and I felt like you were going to put it on, so I took it off so that we wouldn't like repeat uh, games and we'd get like 10 different games. But Champions of Midgard is great. It's a good introduction to the worker placement idea, which is uh, sort of ubiquitous in hobby board games, but if you're just getting into the hobby from like the world of Monopoly and Life and Clue, worker placement seems very strange. It's an unusual mechanic, but Champions of Midgard is a good introduction to it. But it also manages to feel action-packed with the dice roll and combat. And uh, one of the games that I'm going to talk about on my list is uh, something that I think maybe uh, Champions of Midgard is kind of an answer to, where there's worker placement, but then there's still a little bit of chunky, almost role-playing like combat in it too. So I think it's a good. Uh, I think Champions of Midgard is a good uh, bridging the gap game between people that maybe like more thematic uh, dice roll, chunky combat games, but want to dip their toes into a strategy game. I think it's also, like you said, it's one of those games that can be very fun for beginners to jump into because while, you know, you do have to, if you are un very knowledgeable of the mechanics, if you understand what's going on, you can do very well, but just jumping into it and just playing feels good. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to have a grand strategy. You can just pick it up and play. And I think that's why that would be the first one on my list. But what's your second game, Matt? All right. So the next game for me is going to be Dead of Winter from Plaid Hat Games. Mm. So Dead of Winter for me is an example of, I feel like sometimes in the board gaming hobby, you you have one incredible game, uh, one incredible session of a game, and you're just kind of chasing that high again and again. And that's how it was for me with Dead of Winter. The very first time uh, we played it, or maybe the second time, but an early session in it was about a perfect uh, r realization of what that game is trying to do. If you're not familiar with it, Dead of Winter is essentially... Uh, the Walking Dead, the board game without the license. It's a zombie apocalypse survival scenario where each uh, player is controlling a group of survivors who have to band together during a long winter to try to survive harsh conditions. You have to have enough food to keep everybody healthy in the colony. You have to overcome uh, different obstacles each round. And of course, there's the ever-present threat of zombies spreading out across the board that you have to mitigate. Um, it's a cooperative board game, but the twist is that somebody around the table may be a traitor. Everyone has a secret objective they're trying to complete, and someone could have drawn a traitor card, which means their goal is to make the colony collapse and try to uh, ruin everyone else's day. That sense of suspicion uh, bleeds through every uh, moment of the game, and in, our, in, in my most memorable session, the player who had the traitor kept it secret right to the end, and when we realized what he was doing, we were about to turn away from losing. He had hoarded the food. The morale of the colony was about to collapse to zero. And the game literally came down to a single dice roll one way or the other. And we managed to win. But it was unbelievable. And that moment when we realized there was a traitor and a mist and we'd missed it the whole game was just magic. Just board game magic. I really love the games that are able to mix a fun, like just a you know resource management type game, but also have the social aspects in there. It's almost like playing a game of Mafia while you're playing a board game, which has a really fun idea to it. You can also get situations, though, 
where somebody may not actually be the traitor, and just because they may not be as good at the game as somebody else, they get voted out into the cold. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter about. You're it. a little bitter about I'm not this. Bitter about e it. Ian, uh, Ian was famously uh, exiled uh, once as a traitor, unfairly blamed. But to be fair, his uh, his poor play made us all think that he was intentionally trying to sabotage the colony, but I, really he was just making irrational choices. I like to think that I was just on a higher plane of thought. I mean, yeah, that's possible. Also, it's possible you didn't know what you're doing. Also, there was a memorable time that we tried to play it, and I got the rules wrong and accidentally doubled the amount of food that you need each round to avoid starvation and made the game incredibly hard. We played it on, like, a nightmare mode, and it was brutally unfun. But even with that, we've managed to come back and uh, play it a few more times. It is a rules-heavy game. It's sort of an odd combination of role-playing, thematic cooperative gameplay, dice rolling it's a lot it's um in its own way i would consider it to be kind of a pretty heavy game it's a game that every time we play it i have to sit down a, a little bit before and reread the entire manual just to make sure i remember all these different mechanics for movement and zombie damage and and all of that but it's just so thematic um i will say it's probably group dependent a little bit in that you really need a group that's willing to role play because if you don't really play to your secret objective, if everyone just kind of treats it like a traditional cooperative board game, it's kind of easy. But if you're quietly trying to complete your secret objective the whole time, whole time like hoarding gas, if you're doing your secret objective, if you're willing to kind of role play a little bit, it's a lot of fun. Glad you had that on your list because that's definitely one of the games that I also really enjoy playing. It's one of the games that you brought to the table and I'm very glad that you did. All right, so what's your next game in your top five? My next game is Terraforming Mars. It was developed by Jacob Frixelius of Frix Games. And this is another one of those games that I just adore. The aspect of being able to work around your cards, the resource management involved in this, it can be a very dense game. There's a lot of moving parts to it. You're trying to terraform Mars. You have you try to get the oxygen level That's up. That's the title. That's the title. You try to build the oxygen level. You try to build. You try to create oceans on the surface of Mars. You're building forests. You're building cities. You're developing the city, and you get various points for performing the actions that make Mars more inhabitable. And one of the methods of doing that is developing different cards. You have cards that give you powers. Cards that just give you points. Cards that actually give you immediate effects that you cannot use afterwards. So. It's a big card management game, as well as it is, to a certain extent, a resource management game because you have income that will replenish every um, every time you reset a turn. You also have various resources that may replenish or potentially go away, depending on how you're doing in the game. So it is one of those games that can be very heavy. It's one of those, like, as you play it, you really have to be focusing on the game, but it's very enjoyable, and we have some very fun um 3D printed elements to the game that have really enhanced the experience. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, part of my enjoyment of this game is the components, and then I remembered, actually, that uh, our friend Dennis, who brings this game to game night, uh, purchased some aftermarket 3D printed uh, pieces. If you're not familiar with uh, Terraforming Mars, you've got a little map of the planet Mars in the center of the board, and over the course of the game, you place down these little tiles to indicate that you have terraformed it, so forest spaces or oceans. And in the uh, box version of the game, they're just little cardboard tiles, not all that different actually from the tiles in Castles of Burgundy, but the 3D printed like raised forest and textured water and mountains and stuff, oh man, it's glorious. 
so that's we, we, we do have a little bit of like the Cadillac edition of the game that makes it better. My, my feelings about I like Terraforming Mars, but my feelings about it is it's a game that every single time we play it, I feel like I'm completely overwhelmed for about two rounds. It's a lot. It's not the heaviest game we play. It's just there's all of these cards coming at you. It's a game about card play and playing uh, cards uh, with various powers that are hopefully going to set you up and build an engine that will let you accumulate victory points and win. And the choices are, I'm almost paralyzed. That first round where you have to choose how many uh, starting cards you're going to purchase to form your hand is, uh, that's one of the most like treacherous like opening rounds of a game to me because you feel like you're making these huge choices every single time. Yeah, you're essentially deciding your strategy for the entire game in the first minute. And that is a big choice to make. And while you can come back from that, if you're not thinking about what corporation you have and what strategy you want to employ and <clears throat> what benefits you get, you can definitely set yourself up for a difficult time playing. I think I've won that game once in all the time we play it, but I do feel like I'm usually in the mix and competitive. It's a it's a good game. It's it's uh it's not quite mathy, but it rewards like the planners in the group. This is another one of those topics maybe to even revisit in a future episode is like is the way board games uh, sort of respond to you different um, like people with different like skill sets. Some people are better at games that are really random and like adapting to changing circumstances. But Terraforming Mars, I think, is a game where planners, like type A personalities that can set out a, a plan for victory, uh, that really rewards you. Uh, disorganized type B types like myself get completely overwhelmed and uh, towards the end of the game, I don't even know what's going on anymore. Now, what would be your third game on your top five, Matt? All right, so my next game is gonna be Lords of Waterdeep. And it is a, uh, this, this is the game that I feel like is in some ways a good counterpart to uh, Champions of Midgar. Uh, Lords of Waterdeep is of course a Dungeons and Dragons uh, theme board game. A bit of a classic, kind of a venerable classic of the recent era of board games. It's a worker placement game where you play uh, rival factions who are trying to gain power and control in the fictional city of Waterdeep in the Dungeons and Dragons universe. It's uh, very thematic for a worker placement game. Uh, you feel like you're doing what the game is about because you literally, on your turn, you send an agent out to a location on the board to do some action for you. Either maybe recruit a warrior or a wizard on your behalf or send an agent down to the docks to do a dirty deed and play an intrigue card. So it feels uh, in its own way very thematic. Uh, I'm a sucker for high fantasy themed uh, games. I'll you know, I'll play a dungeon crawl or any kind of fantasy themed nonsense pretty much any day of the week. So all the wizards, clerics, quest cards that are about beholders and dragons, love it. And it's just a good introduction to the worker placement mechanic. There's probably people that would argue there are better, like more modern interpretations of that genre, but that's just one that I just keep coming back to. This is one of the first games we actually played as a board game group. And while I do enjoy bringing it back to the table, I am definitely in that group that I do prefer some of the more modern worker placement games. I do enjoy playing this one, but I've always struggled with finding an effective strategy to win because you you play the game by choosing cards that are essentially missions. You have um, contracts that you are have to fill. And to fill these contracts, you have to get various agents you have to you know get rogues you have to get wizards you have to find paladins you have to find all these people and you have to send them off to do something and the act of sending them off is just simple as fulfilling the contract and you get points some of the contracts will give you recurring bonuses that you can use as actions 
Some of them just give you a ton of points and some of them are just smaller. And I always struggle because I feel that I'm trying to build an engine, but the game doesn't seem to be designed around that. And I, I push towards that and I just, I constantly find myself rebuffed. The game is fun, but for me personally, it's a game that I always just really struggle to understand fully. Well, it's a game that is not so much an engine builder. Some people might argue with this, but I don't know if it's an engine builder so much as a game about combos, like in a fighting game. You know, like you wanna, you you wanna play uh, a quest card. When you turn in a quest, it gives you a reward that lets you uh, quickly complete another quest and then another quest, and then you kind of chain together actions that lets you eventually build toward those bigger, like higher scoring quests. The other thing that makes the game uh, interesting are these intrigue cards. Unlike a lot of traditional Euro games, which don't have a lot of player conflict or a lot of ways to really uh, mess with other players, uh, Lords of Waterdeep lets you mix it up. You can give somebody a mandatory quest that they have to complete, and it totally stifles their uh, strategy. You can attack somebody and take a couple of their cubes, their wizards or their rogues, and put them in your inventory. There's all of these uh, cards you can play that lets you directly interfere with somebody to take down a leader or something. And it can get a little nasty around the table. So, uh, But uh, those elements, I think, uh, are very thematic, appropriate for the setting, and they just work. It's a very well-designed game. I really enjoy all the artwork on the cards. It's just a very, them like you said, it's a very thematic game. I'm playing it. I just feel like it's a well-designed game. While I personally may not be great at it, I appreciate the game for what it is. Yeah, it's one of those games too, you know, so many Euro games have these like pastoral farm themes, you know, I'm raising sheep, I'm uh, growing uh, grapes in Italy. Uh, so, you know, there's all these rural pastoral themes and if you have people in your game group that are just, they love thematic stuff, they want monsters, they want something with a little more flavor, Again, this is a good like bridge the gap game between folks that maybe need a little more drama in their storytelling and all that, but still, it's still a nice, in its own way, kind of chill uh, strategy game. So, I don't know, but it's one of those ones that just keeps coming back to the table for us. It really does. No, I enjoy that one a lot. All right, so what's next for you, Ian? So, the next one for me is, actually, it's going to be Dune. Um, this was originally released in 1979 by Avalon Hill. Um, and it has been re-released in 2019 by Gale Force. <clears throat> now, it's interesting that you mentioned earlier that you chose games that had memorable moments for you. Because we've only played this game, I think, two or three times. Yeah, I want to say twice. It's maybe twice. Um, but every time we have played it, it has been one of the most memorable, memorable game sessions that I can remember. Um, if you're not aware, Dune is a book series by Frank Herbert. <laughs> Um, you know, within the, you know, I think it was in the 60s, I think is when he released it. Um, sure, let's go with that. Let's go with that. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the idea is, it's kind of a Risk Twilight Imperium type game where you are trying to get your um, forces onto the planet, and you're trying to take over the planet. There's a couple cities, there are a lot of deserts, and the deserts have the difficulty of there is a sandstorm that will move around the map, and if the sandstorm catches your enemies, they are gone. Also, there is a bunch of spice, which essentially works as the um, gold of the game. If you have spice, you can purchase things. The downside being that either spice will appear at various areas, or potentially a sandworm will appear, which will also eat all of your forces. So 
you want to control the areas that will have spice while at the same time trying to mitigate your losses. So the game is very much, it's less of a fighting game and more of a jockeying game for position because you want to put yourself in a position where people don't want to fight you, but you also don't want to fight. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of like posturing and there's a lot of moving back and forth. Yeah, it's a game, well, the thing that makes Dune so memorable to me is that it is the very definition of the phrase asymmetrical. So there are various factions uh, in the game that are all uh, drawn from the mythology of the Dune world. There's uh, the villainous House Harkonnen and the Freeman in the desert and uh, the Bene Gesserit weird Jedi space witches. And each faction has a totally different set of unique powers and even win conditions that are different from the other players around the board. It is a totally asymmetric experience. If you are playing uh, House Harkonnen, you are inherently like more villainous. But and then there's the uh, Emperor. If you play as the Emperor, whenever somebody purchases something in the game during the auction phase, they're literally paying the Emperor player. So this player is, is, is accumulating gold every time you buy something in the game. It is a wildly asymmetrical experience that is fun and weird and unpredictable. Um, yeah, every time we've played it, it's gone in directions that we didn't expect. I remember the first time we played it, it was this long, not quite Twilight Imperium level, but very lengthy kind of thematic session. And the second time we played it, it ended in about an hour because it was of just a wild finish. It was less than that. We finished the game in, I think, 15 minutes. Because oh, yeah. I believe it was, I think you won on turn two. I didn't want to brag, game. but yes, I won. Turn two of the game. And I mean, he was able to move in. If you hold three of the cities was his win condition. He was able to move in, hold three of the cities. People weren't ready for it. And he was able to win the game. We had set aside a very long game night and he decided to ruin the entire evening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so that's that's one of the aspects where that was crazy, you know? Yeah. Like, that, that could happen. I think in the first game, the most memorable moment for me was normally the cities are safe from the sandstorm. But... I was able to nuke the I was able to nuke the mountains that protect these cities, and in the same turn, I was able to force the sandstorm to cross both cities and entirely wipe them of the enemy forces, leaving them open to take over. Yeah, that was insane because I remember I had my troops behind the wall when it like exploded, and the sandstorm came in and like wiped out like all of my troops and stuff, and it was just uh, insane. I think that that is 100%. It was honestly, it was between Dune and Twilight Imperium for me, but the stories that come out of Dune is 100% the reason why I chose this. Wow, that's interesting. I um, I almost wish, well gosh, now I'm kind of teasing my, my final uh, couple of choices here. I ended up not putting Twilight Imperium on my list either because I want to talk about Twilight Imperium in another episode or in the future. It's just, it's one of those games that is such a chore to bring to the table. You just can't play it enough, really. It's a really special game, but you just don't play it enough over the course of a lifetime, really, to Absolutely. even uh, for it to be like in your top games. So what game did you replace Twilight Imperium with? All right, so my last couple of choices, I went with uh, some very different ones. So I'm going to start with, um, I think I'm going to save, uh, I'm going to switch the order here when I was going to mention these, and I'm going to save this next one. But So the next game I'll talk about is... Clans of Caledonia, which is a fairly recent game to enter my top five, and it is a atypical game for me. I tend to like the more thematic games, as you can see from Dead of Winter, Lords of Waterdeep, Castles of Burgundy, and this game are really kind of the only two uh, Euros that I really love, but I really love them. 
Clans of Caledonia is a game of playing Scottish clans in uh, some era in history. I'm not really sure, kind of the turn of the century. And you're basically farming and creating kind of the great agricultural uh, crops and products of uh, Scotland. You're making whiskey, cheese, wool, and completing export contracts to uh, sell them and try to score victory points. It, if that sounded deeply boring, I would completely understand. It's one of those things that at first glance seems like, really, we're gonna play a game about sheep and shipping. It has a market economy that where prices of goods fluctuate up and down it has uh, it, it's even built around an end game that deals with like futures commodities kind of because you uh you score points based on the rarity of certain goods and you don't know what's going to be the rarest at the end of the game it sounds like it's going to be dry and academic but somehow it's just so so fun and i think the thing that makes it work for me is that it is in its own way really thematic you really feel like you're doing what the game is about you feel like you're growing a little business making money making investments in things and then having them pay off in several turns as you cash in and make money it just is one of the most thematic experiences and there's just something really zen and chill about watching your little empire of fields and crops spread out across uh, this little map of scotland yeah it actually makes perfect sense to me that this would be high on your list because i do feel like this is one of those games that win or lose you are going to enjoy the experience of playing it is just fun to watch your empire spread out across the map to go from producing maybe a single milk one turn to being able to produce cheese and be able to produce whiskey and be able to produce bread and being able to sell those on the market and there is a lot to it i played this for the first time a couple weeks ago and it felt very very insurmountable as i was approaching it but then within the first turn it just it clicked and i was able to move forward it and i just really enjoyed this game it's very fun yeah it's just really well thought out i mean if you uh think about logically like what you need to do to accomplish the goals it all kind of makes sense if you have a contract that needs milk you got to start out by getting some cows so you uh, grow a little pasture and then you get milk and then later on you realize maybe i can turn this milk that i am uh, producing into cheese so you make a dairy and uh, later on, somebody might uh, cause the price of cheese in the game to collapse because they sold a bunch of cheese and the market's been flooded. So now maybe it makes more sense to get out of this whole dairy business. So you do a contract of beef and you get rid of all your cows. It's the really the interplay of like the way the market changes and forces you to rethink kind of some of the choices you make and to always be kind of pivoting into new areas. It's just a really smart, really fun design it's one of those games too where components i think kind of make it work you have a nice modular board in the center that creates a different map every time you play but it kind of represents rural scotland you have all these little wooden uh pieces that you put out that represent your uh you know your your cows sheep and other products that you're putting out on the board it's just fun to play it's fun to play with and i think you're right it's one of those games where even if you lose like you kind of feel satisfied that you did something you kind of you start out with nothing and you have a little business at the end that you know completed some goals absolutely i very much enjoy the process of playing that game i'd like to get it to the table soon again because the first time we played we had one rule that we played slightly wrong and i think it would have affected the end result a little bit 
Yeah. Um, I think he would have won that game. Absolutely, I would have won that I, game, and I'm still bitter about it. So I think about that uh, constantly. I'm glad you brought it up. Very much like to get that game out here again and have a rematch on that. Sure. Yeah, we did have a slight rule discrepancy last time that I think would have skewed it in my favor if we would have played it right. But not bitter. Not Don't hold a grudge. Uh, it's fine. It's totally fine. Hey, so what's your next game? So my next game is one of my favorite games ever. It might be my favorite game of all time. I didn't put it as my last game, but this game is Wingspan. It was developed by Elizabeth Hargrave, published by Stonemaier Games. And Wingspan is a game that I would play every single day. I would play that game over and over again. It is thematically, I find it incredibly zen to play. It is just enjoyable. The pieces are good. So the idea of Wingspan is that you're a bird watcher and you're trying to collect birds. You have a track with three different um, biomes. You have woodlands, you have um, grassy, like, uh, um, plains, and then you have the lakes. And you try to collect these birds, and each bird has a different power that will expand your ability to do different, uh, different things, like collect food, which allows you to purchase birds. You draw cards, which are the birds that you will then purchase, or you lay eggs, and eggs go onto every bird, and they are used to purchase birds, um, as well as also being in-game scoring. Um, this is just one of the most tightly designed games that I've ever played and it is just constantly fun to play because you can have a consistent strategy that if you execute well on it will almost always put you in the top yeah i mean i i like i like wingspan a lot i'm really glad you brought brought it up because there's so many interesting uh things i think to discuss with wingspan it is a gorgeous game it has this beautiful uh audubon society like art of the various birds on all the cards it has these awesome chunky wooden dice that represent the, the uh, food that the birds uh, eat that you throw down into a dice tower that is a little birdhouse. I mean, every uh, element of the game's visual and component design is just pitch perfect. And it's one of those games, like I said at the top, where it's just fun to play and look at the pieces. And it's uh, it's just really great. Here's my, here's my beef. Here's my beef with the Wingspan. And it's like, you said it too. You said the theme of the game is... You're a bird watcher who collects birds. That's not what a bird watcher does. <laughs> and it's like, this is where the intersection of like theme and gameplay gets really funny to me. The thing I loved about Clans of Caledonia is that the theme of the game is I'm running a farm is comes through in every choice you make in the game. So it's very logical. Uh, you know what you need to do to progress to the game's goal because it's very thematic. I don't understand what I'm doing in Wingspan. It's like there's birds and there's a terrain that shows the various birds where, where the birds live they grow eggs am i like harvesting their eggs am i capturing these birds am i just watching the birds i know that sounds silly but because the theme is very abstract like it's a game about birds but i don't actually know who i am and what i'm doing it makes the game very murky to me and i find myself lost i i am not good at wingspan i've never even come close to winning it it's just kind of an engine building game where birds are the backbone but i feel like it could be like reskinned as anything and play the same and you wouldn't even know it it could be a game about like buying food in different aisles of the grocery store that's my only criticism it's <laughs> theme and it's actual gameplay are not actually well integrated to I me i think there are definitely games where the theme and the gameplay are absolutely inseparable um and i do agree that wingspan is not necessarily one of those games um interestingly enough that's actually my gripe with waterdeep harbor if we can back up uh, yeah. lords of waterdeep is that I never feel as if I'm playing the theme because, you know, all of the agents you're picking up are just colored cubes and 
like when you fulfill contracts, all you do is you go back and you just send them in, you turn them in and you get the con the points for it. But that's of course, you know, going back, I would really love to visit the idea of themes and how they tie into games later at a later podcast. But I do understand why wingspan can be frustrating in that aspect because it isn't necessarily tied to the mechanics of the gameplay. As beautiful as it may be, it doesn't always work thematically. I mean, that's my only gripe. I feel like, I mean, Wingspan is such a buzzy, like, popular game right now. I feel like this is, if anybody listens to this podcast at all, this is where, like, people are, I'm going to get, like, hate mail or, like, people, don't at me. I don't, I don't want to hear, no, I do want to hear your takes on board game, on, on Wingspan. I will play Wingspan anytime because it is very zen. There's just something very chill about it. And, of course, our board game group makes a big deal of, uh, and I say our board game group, and I mean me. I make a I make a big deal about making everybody read the bird fact on their bird car when they play it, and I I just think that's really funny. But it's just a, those little thoughtful touches, like putting an actual fact about each bird on the card. It is so fun. That is your and definitely my wife's favorite part of the game. And if somebody puts a bird down and does not read a bird fact, oh, we're going back and reading that. We'll get fact. on top of it. Oh, we're getting, we're reading that bird fact. And and if, am I going to stop the game to look up the bird call for a bird? You know Absolutely. I am. You know I am. Uh, it's a good game. It's a fun game. It just is a game that for some reason just doesn't click with my imagination. And that's one of those things about board gaming. It's just, I think if the game kind of resonates with you, you're going to enjoy it all the more. It's a, it's a great game. So that's four for me. Um, I think it's your last game. What do you got? All right. So this is my last game. And I, and again, I debate whether or not I would call this my number one of all time game, but it is, it is a game that I've enjoyed the most probably of the games that we have in our current lineup. And this might surprise you, but it's going to be Descent, Journeys in the Dark, 2nd Edition. Wow, I did not see that coming, actually. I really, like, searched... Uh, Soul, is Soul Search too dramatic for this? I searched myself, I searched my heart. Uh, uh, this is a very emotional process for you. You know, I went on a sojourn. I went on a uh, rumspringa to kind of, like, find myself. And is this I, why I couldn't contact you for the last week? This is where I've been for the last uh, six and a half weeks, and while I have a very long beard right now. Uh, no, when I, when I really thought about the last few years of the board gaming hobby and gaming experiences that I loved... I just realized that Descent is just one that I really enjoy. And this is probably because it just connects with me personally. I'm a huge fan of fantasy nonsense. If it's got wizards, dragons, and a big pile of gold, I'm there for it. I'll play some pretty bad games that have this theme and still find the fun in them because it just works for me. But this is, I think, a very good game in that genre. Okay, so if you're not familiar with Descent, it is basically the epitome of a classic dungeon crawl. It's a big box game from Fantasy Flight Games full of miniatures representing heroes and monsters. It's got modular tiles that you place down to make uh, your various dungeon spaces. And it's got a scenario book that takes you through a story uh, where you eventually kill monsters, find treasure, get lots of cool weapons and gear, and upgrade your heroes with new powers and abilities. It, uh, in its base box, when it came out years ago, it was a one-versus-all type experience where you had an overlord who ran all the monsters and the heroes played them. And it was a really popular game in that form, but honestly, I never played it until years later when they released an app for the iPad that lets the uh, uh, computer control all the monsters and guide you cooperatively through a story. So my experience with it has always been as a fully uh, cooperative game and as a result, I really, really like it as a co-op dungeon crawl experience that plays out over several sessions, maybe even several weeks or months, depending on how often you meet. And your character kind of grows and evolves. You're, you're tossing big handfuls of chunky dice and having that fun tactile experience of combat. 
it's just a really good game that captures, I think, the best feelings of that dungeon crawl environment where you don't know what's happening next. You're having to make interesting tactical choices with your various powers and skills that your different heroes have. And it's just it's just a good game. It really is the type of game that I keep coming back to. Thematic, fun, uh, interesting choices to have, and it tells a story. And story and theme are something that pulls me back in. Uh, what do you think about it? I know we've only had a chance to play. I know you and I have only had a chance to play that together a couple of times. Yeah, I really enjoyed the proce uh, process of playing that game. We have played a couple different dungeon crawlers together. Um, I think Gloomhaven being the most popular one that we played together. And uh, I do think that Darkness is probably the best one um, that we've done. I just really enjoyed the app aspect of it because it does take it from a one versus many game, which does put a certain aspect of tension within the game to a pure cooperative experience, which is just very rare mm -hmm. um, like in that instance. And it also makes it so you're not reliant upon a long list of rules that says, okay, this minion will always do this, and this minion does this. It's all taken care of immediately. It's very thematic. It plays music. There is voiced narrative. It is just a really well-designed app, and it makes the experience of playing the game Almost like it's almost like playing Dungeons and Dragons if you don't like role playing. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Like actually, before we got started playing D and D, which now we're a few years into playing D D and D together, but before we got into doing that, uh, Descent was a great introduction into that type of story-driven uh, fantasy gameplay. Because again, we're really talking almost exclusively about the app-driven version of Descent. Uh, uh, that uh, was sort of in the latter years. I think this game is kind of out of print and fallen out of uh, Fantasy Flight's lineup, but when they did introduce the app and turned it into a fully cooperative game, it, it was a great experience, and it was kind of a hybrid of video games and board games. It kind of combined the best of both worlds. You have, you're around the table with friends, you're playing with these fun, high-quality components, you are socializing, but then you do have like AI to run the monsters and make it more social and fun. Again, I don't know if I'd call it my number one of all time game, and I had this game tied with another Fantasy Flight game set in the same fantasy universe called Roombound, and that's probably the game that you expected me to drop right here, but I had to keep thinking like a game that I would play almost any time, and Roombound is a game that I love, and I hope we can talk about it in another episode. Uh, Runebound, I think, is an underrated game. It's out of print. It didn't really get its love in its day. But it's a big game. It's long. Uh, it doesn't have the app-driven components to kind of streamline certain things. So combat can be laborious. In the end, I just realized that I would probably play Descent more readily than I would play Runebound, if I'm being honest. But I like all of uh, Fantasy Flight's quick tangent. I really like all of Fantasy Flight games in-house fantasy universe it's the most generic uninspired fantasy universe and i get that but there's just something charming about the characters and the world they built and i hate that a lot of the games in that lineup appear to have like fallen out of print and i don't know what ffg's like future is with that tearing off the universe of games but i'd be curious but yeah that's my number one i mean at the end of the day i love a lot of different types of games but a good chunky dungeon crawler is something that i'm gonna probably uh, i'll come over and play any day it is a very very good game to just pick up if you want that experience but you don't want to have to sit through hours and hours of rule reading 
like setup is very simple because it tells you exactly what to do. I think it's a very good beginner dungeon crawler. Yeah, I think it is a pretty good beginner one because of that because of the app making it a little more accessible. Um, uh, future episode dungeon crawls, all all time great dungeon crawls because there's so many different variations on that very familiar theme. All right, Ian, what's your last game on your list tonight? So my last game, and this is generally one of the I think one of the best games that we have here is Sushi Go. Um, and I apologize for the pronunciation here. Uh, it was designed by Zoch Verlog in 2014. Initially, really... I'm really going for it. Yeah. <laughs> this was originally came out as just a boxed card game. And the idea behind this game is that you are trying to build a sushi um, meal. And so you deal out cards to everybody. There are different, you have a dessert, you have different rolls. You have different appetizers, there are different specials, and each card will have either a power or a way to score points. Some cards just have points on their own, some cards you need to have two of, some cards will gain points as you get more of them, starting off low, getting high. Other cards will only score you points if nobody else plays it. There's a whole list of them, and this originally started out as one menu. You, you pulled it out of the box, you dealt it out. We actually got this for my little sister, for Christmas a couple years ago. And we expected it just to be this small kitty game, and it was genuinely some of the most fun we had that Christmas. So the next year, we were actually given the party box, which I think is the definitive experience of Sushi Go, because this comes with a bunch of cards. It is probably five times the cards that come in the box, and you can then choose what menu you want. There are a bunch of different rolls, bunch of different appetizers. You can create a custom experience. If you want a high scoring game, if you want a game where you can kind of go at each other and be a little more cutthroat, if you want a game that's very thoughtful and you need to think about what you're doing, there's a lot of different ways to play it. And it's just a enjoyable, quick game. Yeah, I'm really glad you kind of injured your list with Suji Go because we've covered uh, a lot of different types of games, you know, uh, Euro games, heavier strategy games like Dune, uh, Dungeon Crawls. And there's always room for a lighter family game. I mean, Sushi Go is almost an all-ages type experience. It's pretty accessible. Uh, if you can kind of understand the basic mechanic of uh, drawing a card and passing and trying to figure out how to like make these different sets to score points. Uh, and even though it's really simple and accessible, it's also really deep and strategic, and it never really gets old and the charming art and overall like fun theme of, of building a little fushi uh, fushi menu a fushi menu it is just really good game it's just a timeless fun game it's the perfect kind of like palate cleanser we've played it at the end of a gaming night Countless so times. many times and it's just a great way to we've gone through some like really tough uh sometimes grueling strategy game and then it's just like man let's just play some sushi go just to wash it down it really is just a palate cleanser. You can play it at the end of any game, and it just calms emotions. It makes it a lot easier to just go home, even if you know you had a really rough loss. It's just a really zen game. I know we've used that term a lot, but this does just feel like that sort of game. You just you take a card, you pass it on. It's so fast. We can play it in 30 minutes or less, depending on how quickly we're moving. And it's just a really fun one to end on, and I'm glad we were able to end on this one as well. Yeah, that's a really, really great choice. It's a fun sort of timeless game and it really kind of shows how much variety there is in like theme and style and like hobby board gaming and what's made the this uh this hobby so fun to get into in the last few years you know board games have really exploded in popularity 
and it's been driven by creative games like Sushi Go that are totally different than the board games we grew up with. I mean, I think like so many of us, you know, I grew up in a house playing like, you know, uh, Monopoly and Guess Who and these kind of grueling uh, family games and then realizing there's this huge world out there of creative games with different themes and stories and concepts that you've never played before. And Sushi Go is kind of a fun uh, gateway game for people to get into the hobby. So those are our personal top five board games that we have. And I think we had a pretty good list there. I mean, I'm, pr I'm proud of us. I'd give us an A+. Plus. Ian, I don't know about you. I think A+, plus might be too low, actually. We Were you doing a slight else. pirate voice right then for Dice Pirates? I was trying not to, but it's just kind of hard to not slip into that. I feel like I'm a natural Are you doing a pirate voice? All right, that's. we should probably finish this up before you delve too far into the seaworthy puns. You know, nautical humor is the lowest form of humor, actually. Yeah, uh, swab the deck with this episode. All right, so that was the inaugural episode of the Dice Pirates, everyone. Uh, Matt, where can people get a hold of us if they want to reach out? Sure, you, we are on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Dice Pirates. So if you look up at Dice Pirates on all of those uh, platforms, you'll find us. Um, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you think about the episode. We'd love to hear what games you're playing. And you can follow along with our weekly games uh, on those accounts. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope to hear from you and we will see you next time on the Dice Pirates.